Good morning. It's great to see everyone. A particularly warm welcome to any first-time visitors. And also a little shout-out, I suppose, to Emma and Elizabeth. It's good to see them back from Guatemala, safe and sound. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure not only were you a channel of blessing in the lives of uh, those at the home down there, but I'm sure it was a, a time of blessing for the both of you. And undoubtedly, the Lord worked in your lives in many wonderful, wonderful ways. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where our text is found this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. I want to ease my way into it by setting what I believe to be an important context. And so this context is going to consist of five steps. And so just these five steps as we anticipate the reading of God's Word and our study of God's Word together this day. Step number one, by way of context, something we need to be clear on. Christ offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. That is step number one. Christ offered himself, gave himself up upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. In so doing, he became sin for us. God reckoned our sin to him. He became a curse for us. He bore that curse going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He bore it upon himself in his body upon Calvary's cross. In so doing, he satisfied God's justice for us and he secured God's mercy for us. He rose victorious from the dead. Actually, I wanted to leave that there so that I could just ramble on and have no idea what time it was. <laughs> that was very thoughtful of you, Laura. Maybe self-serving, I don't know, one or the other. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> she walked into that, didn't she? Christ offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin, satisfying God's justice and securing God's mercy. That is step number one. We build. Step number two. God offers Christ to sinners for their salvation. He offers Christ to sinners. For their salvation. Hear this, please. We do not need to fulfill any conditions. We don't need to get our act together. We don't need to meet a certain standard of behavior. We don't need to be sorry enough, ashamed enough, or good enough. We need to receive Christ through faith. He offers the Lord Jesus to us. He offers him right now audibly through the preaching of his word, and he offers him visibly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper and in the celebration of what we've just witnessed, baptism. We hear it audibly. We see it visually. This offer, this great offer, the one who offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for our sins, God now offers him to us to be received through faith. Third step. When we receive Christ through faith, we are implanted into him. And that is what we've just witnessed symbolically. 
That is, Pat and Jacob went down into the water and were submerged in the water and came up out of the water. They were declaring symbolically what has transpired in their lives, whereby through faith they have become one with Jesus. And because they're one with the Lord Jesus, they are implanted into Christ, meaning what? That Christ's death, burial, and resurrection now belong to them. God counts those acts performed by Christ as theirs. And God now reckons them as having died to sin in Christ Jesus. As having risen now to new life by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. And by virtue of this implanting, we take possession of all the benefits and blessings that are found in Christ. To be united in Christ is justification. I'm one with him. Therefore, I am righteous in God's sight. To be implanted into Christ is the key to adoption. I'm one with him. Therefore, I am a son of God. To be implanted into Christ is to be reconciled. I'm in him. Therefore, I am at peace with God. To be implanted into Christ is to be sanctified. I'm one with the one who is holy. Therefore, I am a saint in God's reckoning. Oh, to be planted into Christ is to be glorified. It's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. I am knit together with Christ through faith. And therefore, his glorification, his resurrection is most certainly going to have an effect in my life yet future. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit awaiting the day of redemption, the consummation. When we receive Christ through faith, we're implanted to him and we take possession of everything he has purchased for us. And the fourth step is this. We now, as Christians, those who are in Christ Jesus, we live out our identity in Christ. The gospel has become for us what it means to live for Christ in everyday life. Whatever our calling, we seek to live out our union with Christ by living for him. Now, here's the fifth point, step rather, that brings us back to 1 Corinthians. Listen carefully. If something other than Christ occupies the center, everything unravels. That's it. That's 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. If something other than Christ occupies the center, everything unravels. This is what has happened in the church at Corinth. They have placed themselves at the center. They think the mark of Christian status and identity is their association with popular leaders. They think the mark of Christian status and identity is their exercise of extraordinary spiritual gifts. They think the mark of Christian status and identity is their practice of asceticism 
or their tolerance of gross sin or their participation, as we saw last Sunday, in pagan feasts. They think that these things actually constitute knowledge and that this knowledge sets them apart. They are mistaken. The only mark of union with Christ, Christian status and identity, is love. This is what Paul has affirmed in chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And this love manifests itself how? In a desire to build up. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. As a matter of fact, this love is so desirous to build up that it is willing to surrender everything to do so. That's Paul's point right at the end of chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food, or anything else for that matter, makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. That's love. He who loves God is known by God. This love is made manifest in a desire to build up. And therefore, in his desire to build up and edify, Paul is prepared, willing to surrender absolutely anything. What he now does in chapter 9 is he illustrates this by way of his own example. So follow along as I read it now. This illustration of that great principle as Paul sets forth himself as an example. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless... We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. 
for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for I do this of my own will. I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And so here, Paul making this strong appeal to his own example for a very specific purpose. The believers, most of them, dare we say, in the church at Corinth, have lost sight of what it means to be one with Christ. The gospel is no longer at the center. They're at the center. And therefore, they have identified all these markers in an attempt to convince themselves of their own spiritual identity and status and worth before God and before others. And Paul has said, you've got it completely mixed up. Oh, to be in Christ is to love God. Those who love God are known of God. And here's the great marker of our Christian identity and status, our position in the Lord Jesus. It is that we will love others. And this love will be expressed in one great desire, a desire to edify and build up to such an extent that we will be willing to surrender anything. Now, let me show you what I mean. That's his argument here. And we can follow his argument in three very simple steps. Are you ready? Point number one in his argument. He simply says in verses one and two, I am an apostle. Okay, that's not very complicated. There's no possible way I've lost anyone with that point. He just simply, I am an apostle. He affirms it by way of Four rhetorical questions. What is a rhetorical question? It is a question to which we do not want a response. Why? Because the response is obvious. We already agree on it. We simply phrase the point by way of a question for the sake of emphasis. And so four rhetorical questions. Verse one, number one, am I not free? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. And are not you my workmanship in the Lord? I planted this church. Yes. If to others, verse 2, I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You got it? That's step number one. I am an apostle. Step number two. I have the rights of an apostle. Verses 3 through 14. Again, he begins with rhetorical questions. There are three. Third verse, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Rhetorical question number one. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Yes, it's obvious. Rhetorical question number two, fifth verse. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Yes, Rhetorical question number three, verse six. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Here he is being sarcastic. Because in the eyes of the Corinthians, he doesn't have this right. But in actual fact, 
He does possess this right. He has the right to eat and drink. He has the right to take along a believing wife. He's not married, but he could get married if he wanted to, like the other apostles. And he has the right to be sustained financially by those among whom he works. Now he develops this by providing four proofs. Here are four proofs to back up this apostolic right that I have the right, I am an apostle, and I have the right to be sustained financially by you, the church at Corinth. Let me now produce four proofs. Proof number one, in verse seven, he appeals to three everyday examples, illustrations, more rhetorical questions. Verse seven, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No soldier. Who plants a vineyard? without eating any of its fruit. Well, no farmer or gardener does that. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so you all know that. We know these principles from everyday life, that these individuals who work, they set themselves to it. They glean some of the fruit from their labors. That's the first proof. Second proof, he appeals to the law. Verse eight, do I say these things on human authority? Am I simply making these things up? Am I simply here imparting my opinion? No, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. And here he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 25, I think it is. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's proof number two. The law teaches this principle that as an apostle, I I, I should be getting my wages. I should receive some sort of financial support remuneration from you. Now the third proof, verse 13, he appeals to the temple service. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, so the priests, for example, the Levites going about their business, uh, get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. That's how they live. That's how they sustain themselves. In the Old Testament, the priesthood, they carried out their duties and their roles and their responsibilities, and they lived off of what the nation of Israel brought to the temple. That principle applies in my case. That's his point. And then his fourth appeal, the strongest of all, to the words of the Lord Jesus himself out of Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel, as he sent out the disciples, right? He commanded that they should be sustained and supported by those among whom they worked and labored. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I know it seems a little convoluted when you first read it, right? All these rhetorical questions, but it's actually quite simple. His argument has a very simple flow to it. And he's just simply developing these these two building blocks. Uh, Hey, I am an apostle, indisputable. I have rights as an apostle, indisputable. Third step in his argument, I have surrendered my rights as an apostle, 
Verse 12, middle of the verse. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Again, verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. Don't misunderstand the point I'm making. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And I think he's simply saying this. Look, Corinthians, look, come on. While with you, I could have insisted on this. I'm an apostle. I have the rights of the apostle. I could have demanded this. I didn't demand this. I went out and made my tents and sustained myself. I surrendered my rights. And here's why I surrendered my rights. It was for the good of the gospel. Well, how was that for the good of the gospel? It was for the good of the gospel for the following reason. You're a mess. I mean, this is what he's saying to them. You're a church in chaos. If I had insisted on that right and taken money from you, what would that have meant? You would have dragged me into your sorry mess. Well, Paul now owes us. Paul's indebted to us. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. It would have fed into that absolute confusion and chaos in your midst. And if that is what had happened, well, that would have been an impediment to the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. I live for the gospel. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about loving others. It's about building others up. Therefore, even as apostle, I was prepared to forego my rights. Simple remuneration. You offering me food and drink to sustain me as I labored among you, I was prepared to do all that so as not to cloud the preaching of the gospel. That's his example as he makes a point that goes back into the eighth chapter, seventh chapter, all the way back to the beginning because he is dealing with a church in which status, identity, and spirituality have been loosed from Christ. Christ and the gospel no longer stand at the center. These people stand at the center. And Paul wants no part of it and appeals to himself then as an example worthy of emulation. Here it is again, as simply as I can state it. Are you ready? I am an apostle. I have rights. I have my rights and I know my rights. But I have surrendered willingly my rights. Because you know, there's something far more important than my rights. It's called the gospel. It's called the Lord Jesus. And this gospel has absolute priority in my life. Stands at the center. Not me. That is all he is saying in the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We need to hear this. Why? Let me give you five reasons. I'm probably missing a bunch, but I'm going to give you five, all right? Five reasons why we need to hear this and heed Paul's example. Number one, reason number one. When the gospel, not us, 
when the gospel occupies the center, we have the ability to deny ourselves. If it doesn't occupy the center, we'll never deny anything because it's all about me, myself, and I. Oh, but when the Lord Jesus occupies the throne and the gospel is at the center of our lives, we have the ability to deny ourselves. We don't think in terms of what we want, what we desire, or what we think we deserve. We don't think in terms of what this or that means for us. We think in terms of what it all means for the gospel. Is this for the good of the gospel? Is this for the glory of Christ? Is this for the advancement of the kingdom? Oh, we are prepared to be overlooked if it means the gospel advances. That is love that edifies. Reason number two, when the gospel occupies the center, we have the mechanism for overcoming our differences. And there are differences in this room, aren't there? Some glaring, some subtle, some not so subtle. But when the gospel occupies the center, we have the mechanism for overcoming our differences. What do I do when I disagree with someone here? I'm not talking about the, the atonement, right? Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. I'm not talking about the resurrection, talking about the fact that I have opinions, you have opinions, I have ideas, you have ideas, I have preferences, you have preferences, and we all have quirks, don't we? And what happens when these differences arise? What do I do when I disagree with someone? Here are my options. Number one, I could make it my mission to convert everyone to my point of view. Lots of people do that. Now becomes their cause convert everyone to think exactly as I think. Number two, I could force the church to take a stand on all of my pet issues. Number three, I could act upon my convictions without giving a moment's thought to what anyone else thinks. Number four, this one is common. I could try to find a church where everyone agrees with me on everything. And you'll last 14 months and then you'll go off to the other church, convincing yourself you're super spiritual, no one like you, and now uh, I've just got to find the ideal place. And you're there for three years, and then you'll find another church. And then from there to another church, and on and on and on it goes. Everyone's got a problem. Not me. If everyone just saw everything like I see it, how wonderful it would be. Friend, the gospel is not at the center. You're at the center. You're making it all about you. Well, here's another option. I could gather my wife and children around me on a Sunday morning and worship at home. What am I going to do when I disagree with someone? When the gospel doesn't occupy the center, I will not pursue what makes for peace and edification in a local church. I just will not do it. When the gospel doesn't occupy the center, my opinions, my views, my preferences, my ideas, my needs become insurmountable obstacles because I believe God's favor depends on all these things. Thus, I need to see others in the wrong in order to convince myself of God's favor. It is a glaring sign. Be warned. It is a glaring sign of a heart from which legalism has never been banished.
When the gospel, however, occupies the center, I pursue what makes for peace and edification in the local church. I heed Paul's command in Romans 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. Here's the third reason why we need to heed Paul's example. When the gospel occupies the center, we have the motive for thinking of others before ourselves. What impact? What impact will this have on him? My action, my attitude, my demeanor, my decision. How will this impact him? How will she interpret this? Who might be offended by this? Will this create dissension or confusion or division? What are the consequences? If everyone did what I did, what would be the repercussions? Am I acting from self-interest? Am I turning something trivial into something pivotal? Am I interested in pleasing myself or pleasing God? Is my concern to satisfy my desires or build up the body of Christ? Is my objective to do what I want or to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see what a world of difference this makes? This is everything. Is the gospel at the center or am I at the center? Oh, that we would follow the example of Paul. Here's the fourth reason why this is so important. When the gospel occupies the center, we have the impetus for offering forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. Because it's only the gospel, the Lord Jesus, who engenders meekness, enabling us to seek the good of others. When we really grasp the gospel in its fullness, we are crushed to the ground. No other response is there. To God's sovereign grace in our lives, we are overwhelmed by his love and we are compelled to extend compassion to others, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the starting point because if this is not in place, there is absolutely nowhere to go. We're simply spinning our wheels in the muck and the mire. But when this is the starting point, then we have all we need for healing strained relationships, broken marriages, shattered homes, and fractured churches. When the gospel occupies the center. Reason number five. When the gospel occupies the center we have the solution for one of the most common sins among us. The solution for one of the most common sins among us. And I'm not speaking here particularly of Grace Community Church, although for all I know it might apply. I am certainly speaking to evangelicalism, however, in the West as a movement. Here is the solution for one of the most common sins among evangelicals. It is the sin of entitlement. Sin of entitlement. We now view ourselves as the protagonist in our life narrative, our story. It's what we're told from the time we are infants, that we are living a story, a narrative, at which we are the center, the central figure, 
and the protagonist. And that everything in this world revolves around us. One preacher has pointed to just how dangerous this thinking is. He gives three reasons. Here's the first. This this sin of entitlement, it twists our perception of reality. It makes us delusional, basically. Twisting our perception of reality. We end up with an inflated view of ourselves. Secondly, it impairs our ability to enjoy what we have because we're always fixated on what we don't have. Thirdly, it poisons us against others. Because of our sense of entitlement, we think everyone must bend to our personal narrative. And my friend, if you don't bend to my personal narrative, guess who you become in my personal narrative? The villain. As I live out my story as a protagonist, what I think I am entitled to, how I think things should go, and how I perceive everyone else should fit into this narrative that I have determined for myself. And woe to the individual who does not buy into that. Woe to the individual who does not play their part in my narrative. Oh, but when the gospel occupies the center, and this is Paul's example, it pushes us to where we belong. And you know what we realize? We don't have a story. It's all about the Lord Jesus. We are not at the center Christ is at the center, and the proclamation of the gospel is at the center. And when it occupies that center fully and finally and completely, we have the remedy and the solution for one of the most common sins among us. And so back to the beginning. What is this gospel? Do you remember my first four points? First four steps. Here they are again. Number one. Christ offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he bore that curse, that punishment, that judgment in full. Number two, God offers Christ to sinners for their salvation. There are no requirements you must meet. You do not need to clean yourself up or get your act together. He offers you the Lord Jesus and you simply receive him as a gift offered to him and receive him by faith. In the Lord's Supper, it is so wonderfully portrayed. We eat and we drink. And so we eat the Lord Jesus, drink the Lord Jesus, appropriating him, thereby becoming one with him through faith. Step number three, when we have received him through faith, we are implanted into him. And our entire identity is shaped by him. We are Christians. And he has become unto us wisdom. He has become unto us righteousness. He has become unto us sanctification. He has become unto us redemption. And the fourth step, and here's where it's breaking down in the church of Corinth. We now live out our identity in Christ. The gospel is about being God's people in everyday life. And when this gospel takes root, when this gospel reigns supreme, let me state it again, when this gospel is at the center, we can begin to say what Paul states there in the middle of verse 12, nevertheless, 
We've not made use of this right. Because, you know, it's not about my, not about my rights. I know my rights. It's not about my rights. It's not about what I want. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Oh, our heavenly Father, impress upon us the glories of your grace afresh in Christ Jesus. Remind us of our sinful state and condition and what you have redeemed us and brought us out of. And help us in our celebration of our glorious position now in Christ Jesus. And may this be our all in all. May Christ be our all in all. And may this be made evident in a spirit, in an attitude, in a posture of love. A love that is desirous to build up and not tear down. A love that is desirous to make much of Christ. A love that desires to make the gospel known. And this we ask of you in Christ's matchless name. Amen.